attention. Welcome, Charlie. Now, before we get into the podcast, I've got to give people some context. Charlie is the Senior Lecturer in Sports and Exercise Science at Oxford Brooks University. And they've got an amazing record in rowing of late. Maybe we talk about that, maybe we don't. But you're teaching exercise, physiology and nutrition there. And you've got degrees from all around the world. I love this. University of Texas. That's where you met Stephen Siler, right? Sydney, Reading University and Aberdeen. You have a passion for rowing, that's clear, because I think you'd have to have a passion for rowing to coach it, compete, and you've published several peer-reviewed publications. The books that I've read are The Complete Guide to Indoor Rowing and the one I have in front of me, Advanced Rowing, International Perspectives on High-Performance Rowing, and you edited that with Jim Flood. And in this podcast, I'd like to get into a subject which is, keeps coming up time and time again, questions around nutrition. And you've got a chapter in your book, Advanced Rowing, on nutrition. I encourage everyone to, to go out and buy. But let's, let's talk a little bit about that, shall we? Sounds good. Yep. So before that, what have you been up to? What's taken your eye in the press and media? Well, we're recording this in January 2022. So, so everything in the media just now is about COVID. That's probably the, the depressing. Omicron. Omicron. And I think the less we probably say about that, the better. But those are the things that have caught my eye. We're obviously also looking at the Australian Open this weekend, starting very soon. And uh, we have all the story around COVID and, and Novak Djokovic and people like that and what's going on with the vaccine passes in Australia. So I think one thing that, that COVID has brought to, to my attention is just how small the world is when we have this shared frustration, shared problem, and how it's affected people's training, how it's affected people's waistline. I mean, that's been a very interesting thing. I've certainly mm. be a little bit autobiographical and say I've done a lot more training over the Christmas period. I get up to, you know, 100 kilometers a week on the rowing machine, which is a record for me. But it doesn't stop me gaining weight because the chocolate that I eat and the beer that I drink <laughs> over the festive period still shows up on the scale. And, and knowing all these things about nutrition doesn't make it any easier to live your life the way you hope to. <laughs> Yeah, mate, I, I agree. So late last year, I injured myself and uh, I've had some time off rowing. So I've really looked at different eating strategies because I physically can't get as much cardiovascular stimulation. I can get in the gym and lift some weights, but I can't get out there and row or ride or go running. So that's been a challenge for me. And I'll share that as we go through different strategies and, and my personal experience, N equals one. But we do have some questions to get into, but maybe we could start off with your thoughts around nutrition in general and uh, in specifics around rowing. I think that the first thing to say and thinking about who your audience is, the bedrock of any athlete's diet should be that general healthy eating diet that most governments around the world are very clear about. So those are diets that are relatively high in complex carbohydrates, low in fat, moderate in protein, emphasizes fruit and veg consumption, whole grain. So those standard dietary messages, which apply to the entire population, that's where most athletes should be starting. The, the specific sport nutrition aspects, I, I think a lot of that becomes important as people get into these moderate and high levels of training and if i had to put a number on it i think once people start to do around five hours of aerobic demanding exercise per week or more that's what i think people now need to make some fairly specific adjustments 
to make sure that they're particularly managing their energy intake to sustain the energy required for training. So the bottom line is, for, for depending on where your listeners stand, if they're only doing, I, I've got to be careful saying only, because if you're doing the standard sort of 150 minutes of exercise per week that, that meets most government's physical activity guidelines, well, that's great. Look for a healthy diet, do the things that you know you're meant to do, but you don't really get any great benefit from being very selective about targeting nutrition in any particular way for your sporting performance, except to say, and one thing I think is when I think about the people who might be listening, probably how you adjust your diet to manage your body composition, your body weight. Now, that's something that has a benefit to everybody, whether they're training two hours per week or 20 hours per week. Changing body composition for most people is one of the best ways that nutrition can help them. You've mentioned athletes that are doing five hours and then they start to go feeling they're getting hungrier. They feel that. How about some of the strategies and tactics about before they go training? and after training. And then let's, if we'll get into that managing body composition, because I think that's probably a more advanced topic that comes after that. Sure. So let's look at somebody who's doing yeah, a moderate amount of exercise, five hours per week or more. General recommendations from sport nutrition guidelines would be to selectively target carbohydrate in the one to four hour period before you do training. So the idea is generally, and, and this is the thing that will drive people mad. I'm, I'm using the word generally here. There are plenty of reasons why those same athletes on one day may choose to eat a high carbohydrate meal three hours before they go and do their two hour steady state session on the water. Equally, the same athletes on a separate day doing the same two hour steady state session, they may selectively choose to eat nothing in the three, four hour period before they train because they might be selectively trying. To so what's going on there? So we know that this is a specific example. The, the broader point I want to make is that there is, there is a guideline, which is eat carbohydrate before you go training. But sometimes you may choose to remove that guideline for, for specified reason. What's become very clear in the last 20 years is that for endurance athletes who are predominantly trying to increase the aerobic capacity of the muscle, what's become very clear is that training in a low carbohydrate or a fasted state is is one way in which you can enhance the adaptation in the muscle to the training session. The way you do that, if you do fasted training in, in a low intensity, moderate intensity, steady state, long session, it increases the expression of the protein that manufactures more mitochondria. The mitochondria being, if you like, the, the batteries of the muscle cells. That's where we take the oxygen and we make the ATP for aerobic exercise. In other words, there may be times where restraining your carbohydrate intake along with low and moderate intensity exercise for prolonged sessions might actually be one way that you can selectively improve the training response of the, the muscles in your legs and arms. So sometimes we do that and sometimes we just do the standard dietary requirements where you would eat plenty of carbohydrates so you're well fueled ready for the session, particularly if you're doing high intensity sessions. You certainly don't want to be restricting the carbohydrate intake, at least if you want to maximize performance in those high intensity sessions. But, but the, I think yeah. the broader point there is that there are standard guidelines and then there are times that we change and we break the guidelines. And I wanted to say that because often people get frustrated with nutrition because messages differ. But that's because of the context in which people may be training or particular strategies that they might be selecting. Okay, so let's say that we're going out for a normal hour and a half paddle or an hour paddle on the ERG couple of hours beforehand, what's a, what's a 
moderate carbohydrate suggestion to take? So the, the numbers we're looking at are some between one to four grams of carbohydrate per kilogram of body mass. So most people would be eating things like a bagel, they'd be maybe putting some strawberry jam on there, maybe having a glass of milk. That's enough to get you well into that range. Um, carbohydrate rich foods, that's the way people tend to, to fuel up for these longer sessions. Reducing the intake of high fat type foods, which might sit a bit heavy in the stomach. So pre-exercise, people tend to select high carbohydrate type foods, usually complex carbohydrates and whole grain type foods, and try to limit the intake of the sort of fatty foods. And I suspect that's what most people find out very quickly by trial and error. If you put, if you put a big bacon and do, eggs- Do we need to do meal, anything differently if we're- Yeah, sorry, Charlie, the, the signal seems to be cutting in and out yeah, sometimes, yeah. mate. Is, do we need to do anything differently when we're doing high intensity training? If we've already done that, we've already had a couple of pieces of toast or jam on it and a glass of water or whatever, do we need to have these special drinks to go in before doing a high-intensity session? It is cutting in and out, but hopefully it's it's coming through clear anyway. I, I So do people need to consume special carbohydrate-based drinks before training? Many of these things, carbohydrates, gels, carbohydrate drinks, sports bars, these kind of things that people could consume before exercise, these are convenience foods, they're options. There's they're nothing wrong with them. I mean, you could get a sports drink and get yourself 30 grams of carbohydrate, or you could eat, you know, a, a banana and you could do a pretty good job with sort of natural foods, but many people just find it more convenient to throw the sports drink in their bag. Also, the sports drink gives you a fluid source as well. But again, you could have a banana and you could have a you know, 500 ml glass of water. So those are your two options before a high intensity session to get a decent amount of carbohydrate in the hour, two hours before exercise. If people want to spend the money and buy an expensive sports drink, I think well, that's up to them. But fundamentally, once those foods go into the stomach, the body's not going to recognize an awful lot of difference between the two. Uh, if you're going to do a high intensity session and you want to get the most out of that session, and you want to see the best splits on the ergometer, then it's quite conducive to consuming a relatively high carbohydrate in the three, four hour period beforehand. If you go into that session fasted, then yes, you might see compromised performance, particularly as the session wears on, if you don't maintain a stable blood glucose. And that's quite possible if people have been fasting, particularly overnight. If you get up first thing in the morning and you skip your breakfast, what's been happening overnight is the carbohydrate reserve in your liver, and you only have about 100 grams of carbohydrate in your liver. That's when you've gone to, to bed at night after having your evening meal. All night, what's happening is the liver is trickling away some of the glucose from the liver to keep your brain fueled overnight. So when you wake up in the morning, there may only be 30 or 40 grams of carbohydrate left in the liver. If you then go out and do a prolonged warm-up and throw in some high-intensity interval sessions without having eaten anything in the morning, then there's a pretty good risk that you may start to become hypoglycemic or at least low blood sugar toward the end of the session. And when you get into that situation, you feel it and the performance suffers. So general advice would be if you're going to get up and do you know, hard exercise first thing in the morning, it makes sense to have a carbohydrate-rich breakfast or at least have some sort of liquid carbohydrate source before the training. And if you don't want to eat before the training session, there's nothing wrong with eating during the session, or at least consuming some sort of carbohydrate-based drink during the session, because that will have the same benefit as eating before. As long as you have carbohydrates in the period around the training session, you're likely to be okay. And we were speaking a moment ago about 
doing long, low intensity sessions. Well, look, if you do a long two hour steady state session, you're truly UT2, you're probably not using much carbohydrate at all. You can probably go through the whole session and you're hardly running down for some people, they hardly run down any muscle glycogen and very little liver glycogen is used as such. So low intensity sessions, you can get away breakfast, no breakfast, carbohydrate, no carbohydrate. But when you get into the intense- For how long? For how long do you think those sessions can run? Two, three hours? Almost at UT1, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, UT2, if you're at the low end of your UT2, some people could do that for two, three hours. In fact, it's not the energy that's going to restrict them. It's just the, the discomfort of sitting in a boat for two hours. I mean, very rarely do you see rowers doing sessions of longer than about two hours because it just gets so blooming uncomfortable. <laughs> Yeah. I remember reading in uh, the book on Ivanov, the long lift, that he'd go out and do 40, 50 kilometer paddles and take a couple of sandwiches wrapped up in tinfoil. <laughs> yeah. Eat, yeah. eat them on the paddle. That's right. Yeah. So how about carbo loading before events? We're going into a regatta weekend and you see athletes at pasta parties beforehand the night before or the lunch the day before the regattas. Any value in that, Charlie, or is it really about the evening and the day and the morning? Well, you very sensibly said weekend. If you went into a competitive weekend, I mean, I, I, bottom line is this. If you were to do, let's say, a 2K race at 12 o'clock on a Saturday, you have one 2K race, and that's all you're going to do. There's no heats. There's no semifinals. It's just a straight-off 2K, straight final, six-boat kind of thing. If you decided to just eat as normal the day before, the likelihood is you'll have plenty of carbohydrate to get you through that one 2K race. Because we've got plenty of glycogen. Not often have we seen research studies that look at the change in glycogen in the body before and after a 2K race. There's one study many years ago in the early 1990s out of Melbourne, in fact, which looks at muscle glycogen before and after a 2K race. And what you basically find is that muscle glycogen drops maybe 50, 60% in a 2K race, but there's still plenty of glycogen left at the end of that single 2K race. In other words, a single bout of 2K racing will substantially lower muscle glycogen, but not to the levels that performance would be compromised. Now, if you are going to compete over a weekend, longer races, multiple races, then I can see why selectively increasing your carbohydrate intake in the 24-hour period before you start racing, I can totally see why that would be helpful to the second, the third, the fourth 2K race. The first 2K, it won't make any difference. But as time goes on, when, especially if there's limited time to refuel between the rounds, then yes, I think people loading up with carbohydrates the day before is good. But in most circumstances, it is no harm to, to have the pasta party. Look, it's a good social ritual that a team could do. I don't think it's going to change their 2K times in most situations, but it's no bad thing to do. How about after the race? And let's talk about racing and training. And in the context of racing, they've got to back up to do another race. It's often touted you've got to eat in that 30-minute window to refuel the body. So, mate, what's the, what are the facts here? Is that important, proven? What's going on? So it's very clear. Again, research that came out of University of Texas, John Ivey and people back in the 1980s, they, they were the ones that came up with this magic sort of two-hour glycogen refueling window. And it's very clear that if you, if you withhold carbohydrate fueling, for two hours or more after a prolonged exercise bout, it's very clear that delays how quickly you can refuel your muscle glycogen. In other words, if in an optimal setting, if you really get the carbohydrate in the correct amounts in a timely way after depleting exercise, 
then you can refuel your muscle glycogen probably in 20, 21 hours, something in that range. Now, if you withhold the carbohydrate for several hours and you miss that window, the truth is now you're still going to refuel, but it might take 24 or 28 or 32 hours. That's getting on pretty extreme. But the bottom line is, if you're doing two sessions per day, six days per week, that glycogen window becomes really important because the time between session one and session two in each day, it is short. The time between session two on Monday and session one on Tuesday, it's very short. So for people who are doing that very demanding type training, the glycogen window really matters for preserving energy across the week. Now, for somebody who's exercising every other day, and they might be doing a two hour session Monday, Wednesday, Friday, the reality is if they're eating a normal mixed diet, they'll get enough carbohydrate in that 48 hour recovery window to reload. To yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it depends again on the matter. Okay, so I, I should add it, one it more. It depends again, doesn't it? It's this nutrition guidance. It, it depends. It, it does. But of course, we, we've got to try to give people practical guidance. Is it a good thing to get carbohydrate in soon after exercise, whether or not you're doing a session 12 hours or later or whatnot? The answer is yes. There are other reasons why it's important. It's not just carbohydrate, of course, that people eat soon after exercise. It's protein, and protein is very important for repair of muscle tissue. So you might want to eat soon after exercise to try to enhance the recovery of muscle tissue resynthesis, regeneration, as well as the energy that you get from the macronutrients, carbohydrate, protein, and indeed even fat. Now, one other reason why you might want to pay attention to your carbohydrate soon after exercise is the immune system. So glucose mm. is a very important fuel for white blood cells and for the immune system. When you finish an exercise session, particularly a long depleting exercise session, even if you're going to have several days off after that, there is this infection opportunity in that, that period of time soon after exercise where you're vulnerable, particularly vulnerable to, to infection from viruses and, and other vectors. So there's a good reason to think that if you refuel with carbohydrates soon after exercise, get your blood glucose levels back up, fuel your white blood cells. There's good reason to, to think in some studies in rowers out of Colorado that show this, even a sports drink is a good way to try to keep the immune system healthy soon after exercise. So having pulled all that together, the guidance would be under normal circumstances, carbohydrate before exercise, during exercise, they're good options but also getting carbohydrate and indeed a mixed protein carbohydrate, even fat meal soon after exercise is a good thing for energy management. It's a good thing for the immune function. And it's a good thing for repair and restoration of your, your muscle tissue and your tendons and so forth. So, okay. So if, if you're just being practical and, and thinking like you're going from school or uni or work, would a jam sandwich wrapped up be good enough? And glass of lemon, or do you need to do a fancy protein bar and that piece nope. of fruit, banana? All of those things work. Again, the, the sort of fancy protein bar, if you want to spend the money, it's an option. It's a convenience food. I have no problem people doing that. In fact, it's, you know, it's non-perishable. So a lot of times people are not as well organized as you may be and other athletes may be to prepare the sandwich, to put it in you know, a container to take it with them. But that's really what we'd want people to be doing, the simplest approach. And again, many master's athletes, it's not just them that they're thinking about the nutrition. Master's athletes are in a very unique position to influence other rowers, younger rowers in the club. It's very hard for us to change behavior. So I think most people knowing, know themselves, they're listening to this podcast saying, yeah, I know I should probably prep the sandwiches and I should probably do those other things, but I'll just never do it. 
that's for those people if you want to stick a bag of unsalted nuts in your training bag and your locker at the club non-perishable bars cereal bars that those are good ways to get fuel into you soon after exercise and deal with the fact that many people are not particularly well organized but what i really did want to add is that masters roars set a really good example for junior roars are much more flexible in their behavioral approaches. They haven't yet been worn down by years of tried and tested approaches to rowing and knowing what works for them and deciding that they're not going to change their behavior. But what I really like to emphasize is it's a good opportunity for master's rowers to help junior rowers by saying, look, you really should be eating some, some sensible food soon after training. And if they, if, you know, if they want to use sort of expensive sports drinks, but I have to say by and large, if you talk to lots of junior rowers, and I've talked to many junior rowers in this country, I go around schools, and I say to them, like we've got these interactive keypads, and I say, how many of you consume these traditional sports drinks that you can buy in the shop? It's a very small minority who will purchase and buy at the junior level sports drinks. Most of them will just drink water. And I think they're missing a trick there. Maybe moving into something else here, but something that we tried last year in, in our lab was to try to use milk as an alternative. So junior rowers, master's rowers can, can use this information just the same way. A lot of junior rowers will happily drink water, but nothing else when they mm. train. And we've just spoken at length about the value of trying to consume carbohydrate to help manage your immune system, and help manage the energy. But many kids get the idea, quite rightly from the school, to limit their intake of sugary drinks. But for people who are doing serious rowing training, even at the junior level, I think there is value to increasing carbohydrate intake. Now, you could do that with banana. You could do that with fruit. But actually, milk is a really good way for many people to get the fluid intake, to get the carbohydrate intake, and to do it. In, in most countries, milk is very well subsidized by the government. Dairy farmers are well subsidized, so it's cheap uh, and easily accessible. So mm. I'm a big fan of junior roars and why not master's roars, increasing the consumption of milk even before training. That's the bit that, that surprised me. I never drank milk before training. And we saw this opportunity to try to encourage junior roars to consume carbohydrate liquid sources that was not a sports drink, but it was milk. Milk also has protein, also has a little bit of sodium, which helps retain the fluid. But we thought, well, why don't people drink milk before exercise? And of course, you know why people don't do this. They're afraid of the gastrointestinal upset. Yeah. So when we feel like you're going to throw up if you've got a hard session, if well, you drink it too close to the session. Yes. I mean, if you put calories in your stomach too close to exercise, whatever those calories are, it can make your stomach feel heavy. So that's an issue. But, you know, next time, this is an idea for people to try drinking a pint of milk, just over 500 mils. Try drinking 500 mils of milk before your next low intensity ergometer session. And I think you'll be surprised to find most people wouldn't even notice that they had drank milk per se. They don't notice gastrointestinal upset. Some people know they're already lactose intolerant, and so they know not to try these things. But most people, even people who think they're lactose intolerant, quite understandably, and even those people can usually consume up to around 500 mils of milk in a day and, and not suffer adverse effects. But that's for people to try. But I do think there's something useful to try. Could you drink a carbohydrate-based source that is milk, that is cheap, easy to access, and is actually quite nice to drink before a mm. longer low-intensity session? And put the chocolate in it if you want. If that makes it taste a bit better for you. I'm not, I'm not opposed to adding the chocolate. So let's bring milk into the subject of after training. That's not, not aerobic training, but you've done a weight session. And we talked about nutrition afterwards. 
could milk also be a good option? We're not on the milk board here or paid by the milk nope, board, but absolutely. what's a, could it be a good option after doing weights? And how important is it to take on things like branch chain amino acids and protein supplements, powders, etc.? Because I read on British Rowing, uh, they had a guide where a glass of milk blended with a banana, some honey and berries had the same composition, macronutrient composition as an equivalent protein shake. Yes, probably 10% the cost. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Again, I, I see both of those as reasonable options. It, it's, there's a nice convenience to buying a sort of whey protein. By, by the way, there, there are other differences. And for those people, I shouldn't trivialize, there are people who, don't, who, who, who cannot consume lactose in significant mm. amount. And so consuming those sort of isolated whey protein shakes, they still have lactose in them, but it's much, much lower than the equivalent that you've just spelled out there. What British Rowing are quite understandably trying to do is they're trying to increase dietary quality. So when you talk about mixing bananas and, and honey and milk, what you're talking about is a wide range of nutrient that the athlete is getting, not simply the carbohydrate, not simply the protein. So, so they're not directly equal to each. equally, and I can, I can sort of play contrarian on these things, but equally, the best nutrition is going to be the one that people actually adhere to. They actually do. One of the problems in saying just eat a nice, natural, healthy, balanced diet is for many people, it's a lot more effort to put those things together. We spoke already that many roars just are not as organized as they probably would like to be. So for those people, the convenience of having a protein shake or a protein bar easily accessible that can be mixed with water or whatever else they want to mix milk, perfectly fine. The convenience means they get the nutrition done. And so I think people need to understand that there's, there's got to be a role for sport nutrition products for those who want to take it. But for those who are willing to invest the extra effort with the benefit being they'll probably save a bit of money and going for these sort of natural wholesome food sources is, is perfectly appropriate and actually increases your nutrient diversity, nutrition, nutritional quality. So there may be other benefits to, to going natural, if you like. Um, How about the benefit of protein after doing a, a strength session, Charlie? A, to replace, or, or to, as you said, to, to bring in the nutrients the muscles need, but also to build lean muscle mass and to get stronger. How important is it versus just waiting until you have a, a well-balanced meal of whatever that is? For most of your listeners, there are two key things. If they're trying to gain muscle, and let's assume they're doing resistance training, because if you're not doing resistance training, it's going Lifting to be hard. Right, to... Yeah. Exactly. So for people who are doing those sort of three sessions per week and they're, they're in the right range and they're doing enough training, what are, there are two key nutritional things they've got to get right if they want to maximize their gain of muscle. One is their energy intake. If you're trying to build muscle, you need an energy surplus. Under most circumstances, you need an energy surplus. So adding an extra 500 calories of food per day when you're trying to build muscle would be a good targeted recommendation. I mean, at this point, I'm not even worried about the composition of those extra 500 calories. Just getting the extra calories in, in the first instance is the easiest thing to think about. The second thing, of course, is the protein. If you're not consuming enough protein, then you're going to struggle to put on muscle. So the two key things to get right, energy intake and protein intake. Now, most rowers, when they take up rowing and they take up the resistance training, they do over a period of weeks, once they start the training program, they do spontaneously typically increase their energy intake. They, otherwise, they eat more food. Now, when you just eat more food, you tend to increase the amount of protein you put in your diet. 
So many rowers are probably eating adequately to gain muscle. Now, if you look closely at what rowers are actually consuming, if you look at the protein intake of a typical club rower, you'd probably find that they're eating somewhere in the range of 1.2 to 1.5 grams per kilo body mass of protein per day. That's plenty optimal to meet your daily needs of living and to put on muscle. But the question comes, what if you went from say a 1.2 gram per kilo body mass of protein up to maybe a 1.6 or a 2.0, or maybe even doubling your protein intake to a 2.4. So what would happen if somebody adjusted selectively to increase the protein intake in the diet? They could do that with protein shakes. They could do it by eating, eating more chicken breast. Let me give you a, a sort of tangible answer to that. If you put people on resistance training for about 12 weeks, let's say young men, you put young men on resistance training programs for 12 weeks, on average, the average male will gain around three kilos of lean tissue, all right, most of which is muscle mass. So three kilos of lean tissue. If you were to rerun that 12-week program for that typical individual and you move their protein intake up from a 1.2 to a 1.6 or above, you might see an extra half kilo of lean mass being added. In other words, the vast majority of lean muscle that's being gained is met by eating an adequate balanced diet which is rich in protein, but not necessarily high in protein. That gets you the three kilos. But a key point there is what's really driving the muscle gain is the resistance training. Fundamentally, the resistance training is an anabolic process. And so long as you have enough calories that you're feeding to gain the extra tissue, people gain muscle. Now, if you selectively target an increase in the protein, then you can add a little bit more muscle. But we're moving from three kilos to three and a half kilos. And then to get back to your question, well, what if you really optimize the timing? What if you spread the protein across the day? What if you have some protein just before you go to bed at night? What if you have protein soon after training? If you really try to optimize those things, you're operating in that sort of window where you might get an extra quarter of a kilo of muscle mass. But you know, people don't really do those long-term studies. They, they do other lab-based studies in the short term where they try and predict how much muscle mass gain is going to happen. But if you were to, if you were to boil all those things down, Getting the energy right is number one. Of course, getting resistance training in and doing that properly, that's number one, I should say. Then getting the energy right is the first nutritional demand. Making sure your protein is optimal, and that may be mean that might mean adding a small amount more protein to your daily intake, maybe an extra 30, 60 grams, eating more chicken breast, eating more beans, pulses, and things like that. Uh, maybe going for protein shakes, but I'd rather go for a glass of milk. It's a lot cheaper, that's for sure. So, so that hopefully covers quite a lot about the value of protein. There is something in these protein shakes, but you can get the same effect by just targeting natural foods. Um, I probably should add one thing why some people do speak to the value of many of these muscle building protein type shakes is it's not just protein that many of these products have. They have other things in there like creatine and they have independent effects on supporting people's training gains. Can we, can we talk a bit about creatine and branch chain amino acids then and the other seductive marketing messages that we're getting yeah. from companies? Well, let, let's, let's take the branch chain amino acids. So we've got these essential amino acids, leucine, isoleucine, and valine. Now, you've got to think about those are three very important amino acids, but you need a lot of amino acids to build muscle. It's not simply those branch chain amino acids that are important. Just fueling the body with branch chain amino acids is actually not all that helpful if you don't have a wider source of proteins available to build the muscle. So it's, if you think about building a house, it's all very well 
having an extra surplus of bricks, but you still need more steel frame. You still need a roof. You still need slate. You can't build a bigger house simply by adding more bricks. You need other parts to build the building. And so branched chain amino acids are a bit like the bricks that help build the house. But if you want to complete the house, if you want to finish the product and actually make something that's livable in, you've got to add a wider range of nutrient. You've got to add a wider range of the protein. So if people were deficient in protein and rarely people are deficient in protein, it, those people, if they were to selectively fuel with branched chain amino acid, then yeah, they probably would get a little bit more gain in muscle mass. But for most people who are eating a well-balanced diet that's already rich in protein, selectively targeting an increase in branched chain amino acid doesn't seem to enhance people's And some of the gain. prescriptions are enormous, right? 12, 16 capsules a day of branched chain amino acids or huge that's amounts it. of powder. I mean, it's a commitment for what you're saying that it's... Yes, but for really no no necessity, I would say. Okay. Um, yeah, there's, uh, there's there's other reasons why you could speak to the benefit of isolated amino acid, leucine being one. Like you say, it's a little bit impractical to have to, have to buy all these capsules and consume them, but there doesn't seem to be any great benefit to, to fueling with those selective pills as such. Why not just get yourself more chicken breast and enjoy eating something as well? That's, a, that's another really important point for athletes. You've got to enjoy what you're doing. It's got to be sustainable. Yeah. How about creatine? So creatine is a little bit different. So creatine is found predominantly in meat and, and fish. Your liver makes creatine, so our, our body can synthesize creatine. But research in the early 1990s found, particularly with, with sprinters in the UK, found that if you could target a selective dietary intake increase of creatine, you could enhance the muscle store of creatine. So creatine is, is manufactured in the body. It's stored in the muscle and it's a high energy source that supplies ATP to the muscle for short periods of time, very short periods of high intensity exercise. How so, short? 10, 12 exactly, seconds? Exactly, within the 30 second range, within the 30 seconds. So it, it's, it's a huge impact on all 2K races, but even more so on a 1K race. It, it is, and then you picked 1K, and there's a study I can think of, I think somewhere out of Birmingham University or somewhere, about, somewhere in England anyway, back in the 1990s, where they found that you could increase people's 1K rowing performance by about a second. I mean, it's not a big increase, but it, for a thousand meter race, yeah, there's a benefit to fueling with creatine. I think the bigger benefit of creatine, and this is now widely studied, is in the weight room. People who do use creatine, and, and to give you a sense of the loading, people could consume a five gram serving of creatine each day for a period of months. You know, Which is not people, much, five grams, is it? You it's just not put, you much. You put it in your, in your electrolyte drink or water or whatever. You get it in those whey protein shakes. Five grams is enough to accumulate over about 30 days. Five grams of creatine per day over 30 days is enough to saturate the muscle storage of creatine to get the full effect. What you normally see being advised on you know, creatine packets is, why not do seven days of 25 grams per day for seven days? That's the typical way that people load. But you get the same effect as five grams over 30 days as you do 25 grams in seven days. If you want to load the muscle up quickly, then you can take a five, four or five times the, the, the five gram dose that I was talking about there. And, and so what? What's the benefit? You just increase the reserve of energy in your muscle available for high intensity explosive activity, which becomes very helpful when you're doing repeated bouts of exercise, such as when you go into the gym to do repeated bouts. You use the creatine and then you resynthesize. You, you make the creatine available again in the recovery period when the muscle phosphocreatine stores replenish, that energy becomes available again for repeated bouts of exercise. So 
the creatine seems to be very good at supporting improved performance in the weight room because it lets you train harder. That seems to be the big benefit of creatine. It just lets you push a little bit more reps out in the weight room. If you're pushing a bit more reps out in the weight room, you tend to see greater gains in muscle mass over time. That's what the research basically shows, that the creatine supplementation is a way to train a little bit harder, and it does tend to result in slightly greater gains in muscle mass, lean body mass over time. Okay, so that translates across to performance on the erg or in the boat. How about doing those repeated short high intensity 20 second intervals or starts with 10? Creatine have much impact there? That's where we'd expect exactly the sort of area we'd expect to see the benefit, uh, just in those short high intensity exercise bouts. I mean, there's a couple of things to say about creatine. Creatine is working if in the first few days of taking it, particularly if you're loading the 25 gram per day type approach, it's working if your body weight goes up. If you see a significant increase in body weight, one kilo, maybe a kilo and a half, what's happening is the creatine is being retained in the muscle and it pulls water into the muscle. It helps retain the fluid in the body. So one of the ways that you can also see, and it's difficult for people to observe this with their eyes until they start taking measurements, but if creatine is working for you, what you notice in the days, 72 hours after you start taking it, is your urine volume goes down because you're mm. retaining more of the fluid in the body. The creatine exerts a sort of osmotic effect of holding the, the, the water in the body in the muscle. So urine volume goes down. Yeah, it's going to be pretty hard to be monitoring your, your urine every day. I mean, it, it is, although you, you can take a jug and you can just measure the, the volume. <laughs> I don't if you, so, so that's how we know that the, the creatine is working. If your body weight isn't changing, then the chances are you, you may not be benefiting from the creatine. People who eat a lot of meat in their diet are the people who are least likely to benefit from taking creatine. People who are vegetarian, uh, they are the people who tend to have the lower normal levels of creatine in the muscle and tend to benefit the most from supplementing. Okay. So if we're, if we, we're, do, we're going to do some testing with creatine on ourselves, we do the longer loading or the shorter, whatever, mm -hmm. but we, the areas to look at are the scales. Yep. And if you've got a BMI index or composition index on a scale, whatever you, that could probably inform and start to track it. And I guess it's probably going to also be helpful if you track some of your uh, workouts in the gym or on the rowing machine to see yeah. if there's any noticeable difference. So measuring is important. Measuring is always, I mean, uh, we've talked about this before that I think a good part of a good training program is to measure your progress. Um, if you're going to measure weight would be the simple measure that I would look at with the creatine, but you really want to measure your weight. I mean, I think generally people should be weighing themselves probably once every three days. I mean, that's my general approach unless people have particular reasons why they don't want to look at the scale. I think it's a good habit to get into at least once every three days, checking your weight. You know, separately, there's, there's a wonderful study, a registry, if you like, of in the US of people who have been significantly overweight and obese. I think it's called the National Weight Control Registry. You could Google. What this registry did was they asked people who had been very good at losing lots of weight, but keeping it off. Everybody's had experience of losing weight. But this particular registry, what they do is they look and find people who have successfully lost large amounts of weight and kept it off for many years. And then they ask them lots of questions about, look, what did you do that helps you keep the weight off? Now, one of the key things those people do is they weigh themselves regularly, usually at least once every three days. And what that does is it stops you slipping off and suddenly realizing you've gained three, four kilos and then going Oh, throw your hands up in the air. This is just impossible to control weight. So, so regular weighing, I think, again, for master's rowers, particularly those who are trying to control their weight, is probably a good thing. But 
if you're already taking those regular weights, now you've got a running baseline to know what your average body weight is. Then you add in the creatine for a period of time and see what happens to the weight. If you do want to use the creatine, I mean, we've skipped ahead about whether or not it's even worth going down these route. And I should do my due diligence and say- Oh, come that, on, what's, what, what's your thinking there? <laughs> I mean, I, I, generally supplements, is, it's a fun thing to talk about. It's, it's the icing on the cake, really, when it comes to nutrition. There's far more gains to be had from just monitoring your energy intake, making sure you're getting a good balanced diet, eating those heart-healthy type foods, getting more fruit and veg, increasing your whole grains, reducing your fat composition, and dare I say it, limiting alcohol intake if we were to talk about the things that people really know they should do but don't do that which could really improve their training gains it's exactly that just those boring standard dietary health messages for eating that come out of governments and we have the national health service here in the uk which is brilliant at getting these very clear messages across in terms of basic good dietary quality. That's where people should put most of their attention because of course your listeners are interested in increasing their rowing performance, but particularly as they become older, there's one thing they really want to do, which is to be around for their grandkids. They want to be around, they want to live a long, healthy, happy life. And it's all very well living a long life, but you also want to be capable of getting yourself up out of the chair. So for most of your listeners, unless they're seeking some remarkable training opportunities and remarkable competitive performances, most of us just need to concentrate on the good, sensible basics. And if nothing else, just nudging people to get back to what they know they should be doing and not chasing the supplements too quick. I, I could sort of soften that by saying, if people drink coffee, well, okay, if you drink coffee anyway, maybe you want to time your coffee so that you're, eating, you're, you're drinking the coffee, maybe an hour, half an hour before you do your training session. And you might get the benefit of the caffeine in, in the coffee that way. So that's a sort of supplement that you could use that you might already be using, but just changing when in the day you have the, the, the coffee would be helpful. Going into things like creatine and beta alanine, nitrates, things like that, the, 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 these things give marginal gains. They're not unimportant, but again, for most people, the big gains are sensible. It's eating. the 99% you've got to get right. The yeah. foundations and then look at the, the 1% marginal gains on top of that. Totally agree. Yes. I like, I like the input, impact that you've created with making sure we measure, right? We've got to measure our weight, see what impact is having and also what's happening with um, the scores on the machine or the tonnage that we're lifting. How about managing and, and monitoring calories in, calories out? Now, we've talked a little bit about what happens in studies is not reflected in real life because it's not as controlled, but you, you'll share more about that. But when we hear some of the nutritionists talk about it doesn't matter what you eat a calorie is a calorie help me understand a little bit more about what the reality is here charlie with balancing so, calories and, and and just keeping an eye on them so for a lot of people and, and again particularly for masters rowers managing body weight is a major concern there are so many health risks attached to having an excessive body weight and of course rowing performance is compromised in various ways Carrying extra weight that you don't need that doesn't contribute to the, the drive contribution just slows the bow. And not to mention that there are plenty of master's rowers who can't quite meet their full stroke length because of the restriction that the girth the anatomical impedance. That's it. At both ends, they can't get out of the catch quite as long and they certainly can't get back quite as far at the finish. So, so that's probably a really important thing. And that's where we move into this discussion of, well, how do you then manage your calorie intake 
to limit your body weight gain, or in some situations, how do you reduce body weight? One thing that's been very clear to me over the years is, of coaching rowing teams is when people take on a demanding rowing training program and they are overweight at the start. So you get overweight people who come into a demanding rowing program. In so many cases, the weight doesn't change simply by adding lots of rowing training. Now, there are plenty of people out there who will say, I bought my Concept2 rowing machine that was 200 kilos and 12 months later, I'm down to 150 kilos because they say this rowing machine has changed their life. And I don't doubt that those stories are true because increasing your energy expenditure is a good way to work towards managing your body weight. But the reality is for most people, the easiest way, the most practical way to, to reduce body weight is to reduce the calorie intake. So at one level, calorie intake clearly matters. And so too does energy expenditure. But look, a typical Mars bar, Typical Mars bars, maybe 220 calories, something like that. Well, you've got to row for quite a while. You've got to row for 15, 20 minutes for many people to burn off the same amount of calories. At so, least. So at what's least. easier, cut out the Mars bar or row for 20 minutes? And that's the fundamental problem for people who are trying to control weight. Exercise, especially for people who don't have uh, high exercise capacities, exercise is a difficult way to, to lose weight. Now, I did mention earlier about this National Weight Control Registry. So what are these people who are very good at losing weight and keeping the weight off doing terms of exercise? Well, overwhelmingly, these people are walking lots. They're walking up to 300 minutes or more per week. In other words, they're doubling the standard recommendations for physical activity. So people who are very good at managing their weight are usually people who are physically active but they also do an awful lot in terms of their diet. So, so there's another angle we can take this. I wanted to, to, to tell you about one of my favorite studies. And this is a very surprising one that answers an awful lot of questions. And it's to do with this issue of, is a calorie really a calorie? Does it matter how you lose the calories, how you generate an energy deficit? So one of my favorite studies was performed some years ago at the Pennington Research Center in Louisiana. Now, now, this is a fantastic nutrition research facility in Louisiana, which seems to have an almost unlimited budget for doing some remarkably well-controlled studies. So in these studies that, that I'm going to tell you about, they, they, brought patient, they, they brought individuals to their labs in Louisiana, and it was a six-month study. And what they had was these subjects coming to the facility being monitored in a run-in period, they would monitor their energy needs. So they use things like double-label water to measure how much energy they truly need. They monitor their body weight to make sure their body weight's stable for several weeks. And then they put them into the trial into different groups. In these two groups, one group is going to get a 25 calorie, 25% calorie deficit. In other words, they're going to reduce their calorie intake by 25% as to what they need. So they've got a 25% deficit purely by restricting the calories they're consuming from the diet. The second group is also going to get a 25% calorie deficit, but they're going to do it in a different way. They'll only get a 12.5% reduction in calorie intake from food, but the other 12.5% to make the 25% deficit to match group one is going to come from aerobic exercise. One group is going to get 25% deficit purely through restricting calories. And the second group is going to get a 25% deficit, but energy deficit per day. But it's going to come half from dietary restriction, but less severe than the first group, 
as well as increasing exercise per week. Now, these individuals, they come and they stay for periods of time in the research facility. They get their foods, much of their food is prepared for them. They're given heart rate monitors, they're given gyms to access so that the researchers can truly track what's being eaten and what's being done in terms of exercise. These are really well controlled study. Now, the interesting thing is after six months, these men and women, on average, they lose eight kilos of weight. Now, here's the question for you, Bill. But who loses more weight? Total, on average, they're going to lose around eight kilos. But who loses more? Is it the group that's entirely restricted by food or is it the group that combines food and exercise? I would go with the former because I'd imagine that if you're doing exercise, you're getting muscle mass, which is denser. And, and that's exactly the right thing to guess. It's exactly what my, my students guess but it's the wrong answer. Oh, wow. and, and it's very revealing. Now, the research has anticipated that people want to know not just about weight loss, but also body composition loss. So they use sophisticated techniques to monitor change in body mass. After six months, on average, people lost eight kilos, but it was eight kilos whether you were in the 25% calorie restricted group or whether you were in the combined calorie restriction with aerobic exercise. And when you look at the lean tissue that was lost, of those eight kilos, around two kilos was lean tissue loss. In other words, when you lose body weight, it's very common that you lose lean tissue as well. It's very hard to exclusively drop weight purely from fat tissue. If you lose weight very quickly, you also tend to lose an additional amount of lean tissue. So rapid weight loss tends to increase the amount of lean tissue that people lose. But, but anyway, back to these eight kilo weight loss, six kilos coming from fat on average, and it made no difference which group you were in. Lean tissue on average was lost around two kilos, made no difference what group you were in. And the weight, sorry, the fat came off proportionally across the entire body. So you couldn't spot reduce, for example, fat loss in any particular area. In other words, when you truly control calorie deficit so that you're achieving the same deficit, it didn't matter whether you got it purely through diet or through a combination of aerobic exercise training and dietary restriction. In other words, the calories are what matter rather than the method of weight loss. And I think that's a really important message for people. Now, had they rerun that study and included resistance training as part of the exercise mode, then I think you probably would see more muscle mass being re retained in the resistance training group. And is that not a good thing, Charlie, especially for any athlete, but even more so for older athletes to have that strength and extra muscle? You mentioned before getting out of the chair or out of a, a low car. Absolutely. Right? It is. And again, most governments in Western countries would say do 150 minutes of aerobic exercise and several sessions of strength training. It doesn't have to be in the gym. It could just be doing you know, Get body weight circuits type thing. Absolutely. Because it, it's living a good old age is one thing. Living a good old age and being able to get up out of the chair and being functional and staying out of the nursing home, those things are much enhanced by including some degree of strength exercise in your regular weekly activity. Rowing's a pretty good exercise for that, but adding in something a bit more specific for the whole body is no bad idea. So if, if you're restricting your calories and you're doing some strength workout, then does it matter... A calorie is a calorie, right? Or well, no? not quite. In, in, in the situation of somebody who is trying to simultaneously lose weight, but gain muscle mass. And we said already that you need a calorie deficit 
to generate weight loss. Well, that's not going to go away. That bit is fundamental. If you want to lose weight, you need to eat less calories per day than you're expending. I don't think there's getting any way getting around that. Now, for people who are in a calorie deficit state, but who are also doing resistance training, if they maintain a, an optimal protein intake, then it is possible to simultaneously lose body weight overall, but hang on to the muscle tissue. And for some athletes, there are studies showing this, Scandinavian studies showing that you can even increase your lean muscle tissue while you're in an energy deficit. In other words, and this is great for lightweight rowers, it's possible over a period of time to be in calorie deficit, but if you combine elevated protein intake up to that 1.6 gram per kilo body mass target along with, and it's critical to include resistance training, it's possible to lose overall body weight and even gain small amounts of muscle mass. If you were in calorie surplus and you ate and trained the same way, you would gain much more muscle. But it is the case that it's possible, although very difficult, to simultaneously lose weight and retain muscle mass and possibly even increase muscle mass, so long as you keep the protein intake up and you combine it with appropriate resistance training. So what about if I'm getting my calorie intake deficit or normal here from just fast food? versus the same amount of calories from, we'll call it natural whole food. What's the big deal? Do you want to live to the age of 76, those 4,000, whatever it is, weeks that you get in your lifespan? Or, or do, you want to, do you want to be knocked off sooner? Uh, I mean, if you look, there is a very interesting study a few years ago that looks at the effect of consuming fast food compared to consuming targeted sport nutrition, uh, convenience type foods, and looking at the effect on aerobic performance. And it makes unsurprisingly no difference. In the short term, as long as you get the right, as long as you get the same macronutrient and calorie intake between fast foods and other natural or even convenient sport type foods, there's no reason to think in the short term there'd be any effect on performance, any difference in those two strategies and performance. The difference comes in the longer term. If you want to keep your heart healthy, if you want to keep your cancer risk as low as you possibly can, then going for the natural standard dietary approach is likely to be far better. But you know, going for a fast food meal once in a while, I don't think people should be too overly concerned about doing these things once in a while as a reward for having done good weight monitoring and good training for, for many months. I think people need to enjoy their food and have opportunity to, to let their hair down a wee bit once in a while. We've had some questions uh, from the listeners about uh, consuming too much sugar via sport drinks. Now, we, you've talked about the fact that having a sports drink when appropriate an hour or two before a high intensity or a long endurance session or immediately after or during is appropriate. But how much is too much, Charlie? So we've talked about grams per kilogram. But when we just look at pragmatically bottles of drink, Gatorade or Powerade or science and sport, is it possible we're drinking too much? Oh, it's clearly possible. I spoke earlier about the, the school kids up and down the country, that, at least in this country, the athletes in, in the schools, you know, at least certainly in, in the uh, private schools, are, are very rarely consuming sports drinks. And they've heard this message that it's bad for your teeth, which it is. No mm. question about that. And so when are you consuming too much? Well, if you're having to make lots of visits to the dentist, you're, you're definitely in a situation there where you might want to restrict what you're consuming. Again, I think a lot of this comes back to the issues of convenience, but also 
if, if you're not doing a lot of exercise, you probably don't need to be consuming these sports drinks as such. They are quite, there's a dental erosion issue, but also what happens to that carbohydrate? If you're consuming lots of carbohydrate-based drinks, but you're not doing much exercise, all that carbohydrate sugar is going to do, apart from spike your, your glucose levels in the blood and insulin, which in itself can be problematic, all it's going to do is increase your deposition of fat in the body. And but that's no good for, for the long-term weight management issue. So what's too much? I don't want to put a number on it, but if, if you're going out for a two-hour roll, then okay, consuming a, a standard 500 ml bottle of a sort of 6% carbohydrate solution, is about 30 grams of carbohydrate. That's fine. You could go up to maybe one, two, maybe even three equivalent bottles of carbohydrate in that two-hour session without having to be particularly worried about it, so long as you're consuming it around the training session, because the body handles the sugar differently when you've been doing exercise or in the recent hours after exercise than when you knock back the same amount of carbohydrate on a rest day. So I would say focus your carbohydrate around the training sessions. One, two, three bottles of carbohydrate drink across that three, you know, two hour session. I think that's okay. But be aware that it does take a hit on your teeth. <laughs> Never a bad thing to rinse with water at the same time and get all that, that acidity off your teeth. Yeah, totally. How do you count your calories or do you count them at all? I don't. Uh, I, I do once in a while break out the apps and I, I try to keep track and try to be honest about doing it. But most people say it's pretty tedious to do that. And I have great sympathy. It's, it's not normally the business that we get into asking athletes to count their calories for seven days because it's, it's very it's a real burden on people to do that. I'm a big fan, again, of just making sure that you track your weight on the scale. But I'm also a big fan of tracking how much energy I'm expending in the day. It's a lot easier to track energy expenditure and body weight than to track energy intake per se. What you know is that if you're burning off 3000 calories per day in energy expenditure, and if your body weight remains stable, then you can be pretty sure that you're consuming around 3000 calories per day. So if your weight is stable, what you know is that you're balancing your energy demand with your energy intake. So that, that I prefer. If I saw my weight starting to gain and I was still doing a lot of exercise, then yeah, I would, I would be definitely keen to look more closely at what I was eating. But for most people, practically counting calories doesn't work. For, for, for people who want to lose weight, I mean, a great, one of, the, one of my little techniques with lightweight rowers, if you want to help them lose weight, is you ask them to keep a food diary for seven days. You ask them to count their calories. Now, whether or not you actually analyze those seven day diet records don't matter. When you ask people to record their food for seven days, they usually lose on average about half a kilo. Even trained dietitians, this is a fascinating point, I think. Even trained dietitians, when you ask them to count their calories and record what they eat for seven days, on average, they lose weight. Because what's happening almost certainly is that dietitians, they don't want other dietitians to see that they're not eating healthily. So they reduce their food intake. And as a consequence, they, they drop weight. Fascinating insight into mm. the way dietitians... Awareness, huh? That's right. So, so the act of tracking calories in and of itself is useful to help people start a process of weight loss. But I, I don't think it's something people want to do more than once in a while. I think the benefit of tracking, if you do want to go down the, the MyFitnessPal type route and track your diet, I think getting a sort of overall sense of the quality of your diet. Mm, the to ga gauge where your ba yes. baseline is today. And, yes, yeah. I think yeah, that's the value. So you, you've looked at, I've got a Garmin Forerunner. I think you've got a Polar. They, they probably calculate calorie expenditure similarly, but 
is is that pretty accurate? You look at your watch and you go, okay, well, wow. Even when I wake up, 600 energy burn already. And when you put the right numbers into the watch and you wear the watch in the appropriate way, it's, so it's, it's high weight, accurate. gender, age. And that you wear it on the wrist appropriately. You wear it you know, effectively as much as you can. If you're sleeping, you're not wearing it. A lot of people don't like wearing it when they sleep. That's probably not going to make much difference. Um, I think what's also helped the quality of these uh, devices is the inbuilt plethysmography, which is the, the little green light or red light that you may have on the back of the modern devices, which is monitoring your heart rate 24-7. Heart rate is a really good measure of the body's metabolism. Guess what? If you go and do exercise, your heart rate goes up. If you walk up the stairs or you walk to the shops, these are things that the monitor, that the, these polar monitors or the Garmin monitors, they've got accelerometers as well as the inbuilt heart rate monitoring that's been added in recent years. And I think that's done a lot to improve the quality of the measurement, but it still depends on people using it as the, the user manual would say. But when you do that, I think you're getting to within three or 400 calories of the true value compared to when studies are done with this double label water technique that I, I mentioned earlier, a very accurate way to measure people's energy expenditure in free living situations over a period of weeks. When you look at how well these devices cope compared to very carefully measured estimates of energy expenditure, they match reasonably well. So I think it's easy to track energy expenditure so long as you remember, and I, I talked about this in the previous podcast, you've got to get into the habit of switching the monitor on at the start of exercise and switching it off when you finish. Don't leave the thing running for, for an extra hour or two when you tell it you're rowing for an extra two hours, but you're on the, the car ride home. And that, that, those are the things that screw up your estimates, but it, it's remarkably good. And I'm sure when you look at your numbers, they probably match what you would expect. Yeah, the, the error thereabouts. Charlie, what about these devices that we're seeing marketed over Christmas? Lumen, the breath analyzer, managing. Have you seen that Lumen device? What's it's, it measuring uh, on the breath? I'm well. That's why I was asking you, doctor. It's a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think it's targeted at people to that are looking at keto or paleo diets, and it's measuring the ketones, as I understand it, and it's helping to show people whether they're burning fat or Oh, all right. So I do know what you mean. We measure people's breath. So you can measure people's carbon dioxide levels and, and you try to estimate from that um, whether you're burning fat or, or carbohydrate. And we, we do this routinely in the lab. So yes, it's perfectly possible to measure through the breath whether people are burning fat or carbohydrate. But look, it's not that difficult to predict. If you eat a carbohydrate-rich meal, you're going, to, you're going to metabolize carbohydrate. If you cut the carbohydrate out of your diet, then you don't metabolize the carbohydrate and predominantly what you're metabolizing is fat. So I don't know that you need to breathe into a device to, to tell you that under normal circumstances. I think if people are really going to try the, the paleo type thing, if they're really going to go low carbohydrate, a blood ketone meter is a relatively cheap investment you, you could look at to measure the ketones in the blood. If you really want to go down that, I mean, it, it's pretty specialist and, and lots of people I realize are trying these things these days, but a blood, I mean, I, I've got plenty of friends who say they went, low carbohydrate, they track their blood ketone levels and they could see great benefit to their weight loss. That does not surprise me in the slightest because if you put people on a restricted diet where you say restrict the carbohydrate, in other words, what you end up doing is just restricting total calories in. Ah, uh, so um, I was going to, uh, look, I was going to talk to you about that, about uh, different approach uh, nutrition and restricting morning eating practices or cutting out carbs or low fat, high carb or high carb, low fat diets. Is there much to that other than 
what you just said. If you're restricting your intake of one, you're basically restricting the calories overall. If, if, if your real goal was just managing your body weight, there's little to be gained by manipulating the way that you restrict your calories. If it was all about weight, now there are other things in terms of your metabolic control. There are other things related to insulin where these approaches do have effects. And um, I certainly don't want to get into the detail of that, but to say that anything that restricts your calorie intake tends to be a way that helps you lose body weight. And those things are things that we know can help overweight growers gain performance. Th those things I think are, are pretty straightforward. The bigger challenge for people is how do you generate a calorie deficit in a way that's sustainable and ideally mm. in a way that's also healthy? I mean, that's another really important aspect. Just Generating a calorie deficit any way you like is not the same as doing it in a sort of strategically planned, carefully controlled, balanced way. But mm. bottom line is, if you just wanted to lose weight, anything that restricts what you put into your body in terms of calories tends to support weight loss. Mm -hmm. And so and you can boil down all of those diets, paleo, you know, cabbage soup diets, time-restricted diets, any of those things. When you look at the number of calories people consume before the diet and after the diet, if they're losing weight, they're, they're consuming less calories with the diet than before. And that's the number one trick to success. Okay. We've got a lot of listeners that are also vegetarian and or vegan. What do they need to take into consideration when they're doing heavy training or getting ready for a race weekend? Do they need to do anything different? Most vegetarians, I mean, I think one thing to say is that the number of vegetarians and vegans that are out there rowing might, might be less than you might otherwise guess. I mean, the National Vegetarian Society in the UK here, when they look at the population at large and do surveys on how many people are truly vegetarian of, of any fashion, usually the number they've been coming up with is around sort of five to seven percent. In other words, it's a low number. But what most of your listeners are probably doing, if they're not going vegetarian, what most of them are probably doing is trying to reduce their meat intake, particularly the red meat intake. So I think all of us, for good reasons related to sustainability of environmental reasons and general health reasons are all trying to, to limit our meat intake. So, so that's one point to say for everybody. But for the vegetarian and rowers planning for their weekend, I mean, again, the standard things that they're probably well, well aware of, when you cut the meat out of the diet, you cut out important nutrients, particularly things like iron is the classic one. So if you restrict your, your, your meat intake, you need to watch things like your iron. Well, you could supplement with iron and many people do. They take multivitamins and that's one approach. Increasing the amount of vegetables in your diet, broccoli, iron-rich broccoli, things like that. Cereals are often fortified with iron. People tend to do a pretty good job of selectively increasing uh, some of those micronutrients when they go vegetarian. So, But the other big thing with vegetarians and why many people who, when they go vegetarian, why they say it's helpful to them is for a while, it takes them... It takes a lot more effort to get the same calories from a vegetarian-based diet than it does from a carnivorous diet, if you like. So many people, when they first go vegetarian, they just struggle to put in as much food. It relates to an issue of the density of the calories in food. When It's very easy to get very calorie-dense meals like steaks and, and hamburgers, which are very high-density foods. In other words, you get a lot of calories for a limited amount of weighted food that you consume and what we know is that when people move toward lower and medium density diets so when people move toward diets that consist of much more vegetable based uh, products much more fruit based products what happens is they eat much wider range of foods and also a sort of 
not so much wider range, I should say, but more, they, they select more low density foods. And it turns out that we're much better able to control our body weight, weight when we eat low density foods. That's why a lot of people understand that if they eat lots of chocolate, uh, crisp, these high density foods over Christmas, that they gain weight. Vegetarians move to low density and moderate density diets more commonly than can carnivorous individuals. So the other big issue for many vegetarian roars is just getting enough calories in. And so a lot of this becomes very individual to a person's preference, but looking for where they can get the increase in calorie intake. So increasing nut composition, for example, in a diet might be a good way to help somebody who's moving to a vegetarian diet to get the calories in, but watching total calorie intake. And again, if you are moving to a vegetarian diet, maybe it is worth for a period of time just doing those frustratingly dull and tedious dietary recalls with a MyFitnessPal type app to make sure you're getting enough calories or at least monitoring your body weight on the scales over time to make sure you're getting the nutrient uh, quality as well as the nutrient amount in particular into your diet. So moving into a race weekend, making sure you're getting enough calories from those uh, non-meat sources. That's a big challenge. What do you eat before you go training, Charlie? Good question. (laughs) (laughs) Not a lot. I I tend to be somebody that, that eats more regularly at sort of three square meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I, I tend not to snack much during the day if I do snack. So we're getting up to sort of middle of the afternoon just now, and I, I might get on my rowing machine in two or three hours time. I tend to try to eat unsalted nuts uh, with raisins, tend to try to have a banana. That what, why nuts? Why Most of us consume too much salt in our diet, uh, and mm. I'm probably guilty of that too. It, the salt creeps in so many places, particularly if you have prepared meals or you add salt to, to your, when you boil the pasta at night, you may put salt into your meals. It's very easy for the salt, salt to sneak in. So even though I'm still sweating a lot each day, I think it's generally a good thing for your long-term management of blood pressure to, to limit salt where you possibly can. So sometimes I have salted nuts. I don't avoid them like, like it's a great problem, but I try to limit the intake of salted and particularly processed foods. Salted nuts being an easy way for me to change what I'm eating. And if you put some nice raisins and, and you know dried fruit into your nuts it's a great way to get some taste in there as well and carbohydrates you're still having a beer after the ergo session trying not to that's the one thing that i, I i'm very guilty i love getting on the air doing a good session and then yeah. having having a, a beer afterwards but i'm trying to make sure I, I only do that every other day at the moment i'm also trying to increase the consumption of non-alcoholic beers or at least low alcoholic beers it's just a, an easy thing to, to, to avoid, but it's a lot of roars. Very interesting. Another interesting study I saw this month, which looks just exercises at the, the Cooper Clinic in Dallas, people turning up for these health screenings. And what this clinic does is they screen these middle-aged individuals, not athletes as such, but middle and elderly individuals. They screen them for fitness. They make them do treadmill tests to exhaustion. They measure their blood profile. And they also survey their diet. And the bit that caught my attention was there was a positive association between the people who had the highest fitness also tended to have the higher intake of alcohol. That I thought was quite interesting, that it's not unusual for people, uh, I think like myself, to to get drawn into a false sense of confidence. We think we do all this exercise. We think we're a wee bit healthier. So we think we can get away with that extra beer that we don't actually need. So so that's one of my personal things I need to watch. I need to make sure I don't get caught out drinking beer too frequently it's it's very easy to give yourself that reward after each session actually it's not a big problem to just cut it back scale it down and but what i certainly don't do is i I never binge the students are are ones that (laughs) 
I see the effect of them on a Monday morning when they come into class. And when you've got young kids like me, for example, you don't binge drink because you'd be paying for it at seven o'clock the next morning. You can't stay in all day. (laughs) Charlie, I've just got a a couple more questions. Have you ever felt uh, faint during a session? And if you have, what is that due to? And I'm speaking for myself here. I've been rowing along 30 minutes in or it could be an hour and a half in and i just feel a little lightheaded that that is quite common I, i've had that happen several times to 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 myself particularly um when i do short high intensity exercise so i've, I've had a few occasions in my life where i've passed out from uh, almost what is certainly low blood sugar i've never done it on the water i've done it after an air i've done it after a cycling test and in, in, in labs and it happens when exactly what i spoke about earlier i got up in the morning skipped breakfast i was a, a starving student at the time so i skipped my breakfast thinking i don't need my breakfast and go in and do a high intensity interval test in the lab and then the next thing i remember waking up everybody being around me and calling the doctor and so forth and that almost certainly is, is a low blood sugar situation. I also remember one of the the rowers I used to coach talked about going out on the Thames one day going for a paddle on his own and and capsizing his boat and basically what had happened was he had fainted doing a short burst of firm high high intensity rowing short bursts and and capsizing into the water again so one of the reasons why people and I talked earlier about there's a benefit to doing fasted training but I, I often talk about it in respect to doing that on the ergometer but if you're going out for a bike ride on the road, if you're going out in the boat, especially if you're out on your own, you've got to be really careful just skipping breakfast once in a while to try it as a way to improve your muscle adaptation. I think the adaptation to the muscle is trivial in concern to the health risk that you yeah, may be experiencing. Safety. Now, yeah. that's why the simple solution, if you're starting to feel that faint, that's why you want to have a, a drink in the boat with some carbohydrate or a banana or something sugary because it's amazing how quickly you can alleviate that faint feeling if it is truly due to low blood sugar. Of course, it could be due to other things, but in otherwise healthy, young, fit individuals, if you start to feel faint or a little under the weather during the session, the first thing you might want to do is make sure you've got some sugar handy and see if that restores your happy place, if you like. If if you consume the sugar and you don't feel better in a matter of minutes, something else is going on. It's not low blood sugar, and you might want to make sure you get some help quick. Yeah, I mean, I've often had on a long bike ride the petrol station Mars bar as a saver. But after work to the gym and then doing a session on the ERG, that's when it generally happens or early morning sessions. So I think you, you're right. Get that drink on hand. And-, and we've talked before, Bill, about these monitoring blood glucose systems that you can buy now, these yeah. sapiens type things. If you really think this is where you might be at, it's always worth talking to your doctor about these things and saying, is it is it worth monitoring my, my blood sugar levels for in a continuous way for a week and see what happens? You've got a bit of money to spare. It's, it's very interesting. Equally, you can go into the chemist in most countries and buy a very cheap blood glucose meter and check but it's not hard to do is it prick the finger it's it's not hard it's not but i think the best thing is try and avoid the situation happening in the first place by making sure you appropriately make sure you have carbohydrates or food on hand before during and after training exactly so let me recap a little bit i'm hoping the internet connection is still good to do this managing body composition it's all about balancing the calories if you go into a calorie deficit deficit and it's healthy and sustainable, then you're going to start to lose weight over time. Also, if you don't want to lose weight, but you just want to fuel the performance, you've got to match that as well. There are practical solutions around 
supplementation. You don't have to go to the energy bar or drink, but that of course is very convenient. So if it's something you want to throw in the sports bag, but you could also put a couple of slices of toast and jam and a fizzy drink in there as well. And it'd probably get close to that supplements. That's the icing on the cake. Yes. Get the, get the foundation of the diet right first. And the extra is indeed extra. And it adds that little extra percentage. The diets, yeah, they're, they're again, it's all about managing uh, calorie deficit or calorie excess. And if you're feeling faint, et cetera, and things like that, again, it's coming to how you're fueled before the session. No special rules around fueling after training for those that are training every other day. But if you're doing a lot of training, you're training every day or maybe twice, three times a day, then it's important consideration to make sure that you're getting the fuel in after the training and something that's easy to digest and has, has got the good macronutrient balance. I certainly would, would interject there and say, I think for all individuals, whether you're training once, twice, six times per week or more, I still think the basic principles of fueling before and, and soon after training, it's still a good practice to get into. It's still a good practice to encourage in other rowers, particularly in younger rowers. Yeah. And, and I like just, your point around setting the example for younger rowers as well, that they don't have to go eat the junk food. They can prepare in advance although i also uh, remind myself of your survey that not many young kids are actually drinking the sport drinks or at least in britain they're not at least not of the athletic population particularly those in in private schools when you go into the general population of school kids the wider population that are not doing sport then the consumption of energy drinks and sports drinks often gets lumped in with the energy drinks the red bulls and things like that then yes the consumption of those drinks is still a major problem for younger individuals so i think that's where looking at parents and grandparents who are both exercising sensibly and, and consuming food and drink sensibly. That's a good idea. Any resources that you recommend or suggest? You've mentioned MyFitnessPal. If someone wants to track for a week or a day, MyFitnessPal. Any other resource you recommend, Charlie? Well, I think there are a lot of generic resources, but I, I probably, I mean, I'll, I'll pick a few of those in a minute, but I might make another point here. And I'm, I'm desperate whenever I talk to rowers to try to give them something useful to try. So we spoke earlier, but well, why not try drinking a, a pint of milk before exercise and see how you find that as an alternative. It'd be really good to give people helpful things. Unfortunately, one of the things with diet is so personal. You know, it's all very well saying to people, well, you need to eat more beetroot and that might help your rowing performance. And people say, but I don't like beetroot. It's really difficult to give them things which are unique and I'm afraid that's where the benefit of a good nutritionist or a good sports dietitian who's suitably trained that's where they become very helpful the power I think in many of these professionals is to look at your individual preferences and your individuals the, the way you structure your meals the, the timing of your meals how you fit your timing of eating around training your views on nutrition I think those things if you really want to get benefits from nutrition the biggest benefits come from a sort of one hour consultation one-to-one -one with somebody who really knows what they're talking about because most people have a sense of what they're willing to do so far and I think most people have a pretty good sense of what they should be doing more of I mean it's not hard to say that probably most of the people listening to this know 
that they probably should eat more fruit and veg. Unless they're vegetarian, they probably know they need to eat more fruit and veg. They probably know they're not getting the 30 grams of fiber per day. So they know they need to increase their fiber, maybe drink a bit more water, maybe cut the alcohol, maybe reduce the fat intake. Look, they know all of these things. That doesn't make it any easier to change that in your life. And I think that's where spending a little bit of time and perhaps a small amount of money with somebody one-to-one who will look and have a conversation with you and try to give you little tips and strategies that might make a positive change. In other words, you can go to websites, you can buy books on nutrition, but how you then translate that information that you probably already know an awful lot of already into something meaningful that you can sustain over the next weeks and months, that's really tricky. And I think one of the great ways that people are helped on that journey is to do a sort of one-to-one consultation and to make the the recommendations personalized. I I personally like to answer the question. I really like in the UK, we have our our National Health Service and they have some really good, clear guidance on healthy eating, healthy living. I think they boil it down to just the right amount. So if there was one really good source internationally, I'd happily recommend. I think our NHS web pages, I think are really good for that. That's what I would go. Charlie, as always, wealth of information. It's a long podcast, so it'll be suitable for those doing the endurance sessions during this time of year. I see that you've got the projector in the back. Is that still you play your your videos on the wall whilst you're rowing? It it is. And I might put a little shout out here. What I've been playing with a lot lately is this EXR game. Have you heard of EXR game? So, So these are some developers. I think they're based in Belgium, but they've created an app which runs both on Mac and on PC uh, and on Android, which has a virtual rowing course. And so what they've done is taken the, the Boston uh, Charles River regatta course. And you, I think, I think they pull it from Google Earth Images and they've digitized that into a computer animation. So you can row up the Charles River, down the Charles River. And, and I've got that all projected on my wall here, this great big river. And I have to say, I really like it. At the moment, they don't have a competitive mode, but I think that's coming out this year. So maybe you and I can do a virtual race, Bill. How about that? When you're that, ready, that would be good. good again. Let's do a virtual race online, this EXR game. It's, it's I think it's a, a sort of weekly or monthly subscription. I, I bought a one-year package, it was something like 50 bucks, but it's been a really good investment. So when I roll, especially when I'm doing a hard session, I'll stick up on the wall behind me here, this digitized version of the Boston regatta course. And so I've got my different mile markers, different positions along the river to help me get through the session. And blew my mind the other day, I put the headphones on with the attached audio and it's brilliant. So you've basically got audio like you're out rowing a boat. There's cars going by. There's, anyway, I'm, I'm selling this thing a bit too much, but I really have been transformed in terms of my enjoyment and simulating. An well, you send experience. me the link. You send me indeed. the link and I'll, I'll see if I can get it working with the RP3 because you've got a concept too in the it background. It will work with the RP3, I believe. Yep, give, oh, it, give it a try. It's a free trial for seven days. Give it a go. But look, I, I don't mind plugging it because... Rowing doesn't get an awful lot of investment. And I do hope this group of guys will, will keep the product development going because we really need something like Zwift, but we need it for rowing. And, and yeah, well, I think Zwift was started by a couple of rowers, right? Might well be. And they planned to invest some time and they even hired some people to, to do some coding for the rowing and then they scrapped it all. And so I don't think we're going to see rowing on Zwift anytime soon. But lots of your listeners enjoy Zwift on the bike and you're missing out on the rowing side. Well, Charlie, I'm going to give another plug for your book, Advanced Rowing, International Perspectives on High Performance Rowing, and your other one, which is the Complete Guide to Indoor Rowing, right? Thank you. So go out and get it. It's on Amazon or Book Depository or wherever you buy your book. And thank you again for taking time to speak with us and share your wisdom about nutrition for rowing.
Thank you, Charlie. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. Join me next time when I'll be talking with one of the rowing world's most interesting people. And if you like this episode, you can subscribe so you never miss an episode in the future. Oh, and please, if you like it, leave us a five-star review. That really helps us out. You can find out more about our unique training system and high-performance coaching by visiting whchambers.com.